0: Hi, my name is Stephanie Gordon. I'm today's host for the Zurich Insurance Future of Risk podcast. So prior to the mid-1990s, when e-commerce created a new digital marketplace, the historic supply chain for goods was really manufacturer, wholesaler, distributor, retailer, consumer. But that's been disrupted now, and wholesalers are looking for ways to remain relevant and regain some of the market share they may have lost, but there are some risks associated with that strategy that wholesalers or a whole new generation of do-it-yourself retailers might not be aware of. So we're going to discuss that today. Bill Seliznov is our guest. He's an industry practices director in Zurich's real estate, retail, and wholesale division. So Bill, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much, Stephanie. Glad to be here.
0: To start with, why don't you frame the situation for us uh, with the Manufacturing supply chain today, what's the backstory to how we got to where the industry is?
1: As you said, historically, going back to the industrial revolution, the the supply chain was manufacturers, wholesalers, retailers. It's kind of an oversimplification. Um, You know, wholesalers actually do sell to manufacturers, too. But for today's topic, we're going to go with that premise, uh, specifically more on the products liability side. But uh, that's historically how things flowed. The manufacturer was focused on, you know, making the widgets. Uh, they had the plant, the materials. They sourced the raw goods. They sourced the labor. They had the facilities and machinery, and they kept that all going, coming up with, you know, whatever the latest and greatest idea and widget that they thought, making it as uh, efficiently and, and profitably as possible. On the other side, you had the retailers, and their whole uh, business strategy was having as much goods and products on hand, generating the consumer demand selling them anything and everything they needed, getting people in the door. And, you know, and that was how they made their dollar. And then in between, you had the wholesalers working with a manufacturer or multiple manufacturers and a retailer or multiple retailers. And their focus was having the warehouse space. Managing the logistics, the trucks, the sales network, the the manufacturer didn't, you know, really want to have to deal with the distribution size. It wasn't, it wasn't part of their business model per se. Um, It was a tie up of too much capital, but the wholesalers were glad to do that. And the wholesalers also didn't have, you know, necessarily the retail space. They were more about shipping things in between. But now where we're at today is Industrial Revolution 4.0. And that is, you know, the omni-channel experience, as you mentioned, has is, is revamped all of that. So everything's now kind of a salad bowl you have manufacturing today isn't what it once was you have manufacturing where a lot of the manufacturing was overseas so a lot of manufacturers today look like maybe design companies you have manufacturers selling direct to the consumer so they might even be just going straight to retail uh, which is really an old idea going back to you know the old catalog days and things of that nature but then you have digitally native brands selling only exclusively uh, online platforms and then you have retailers who look a lot more like wholesalers they have big you know this is where we get the term big box store and name your favorite retailer big store and, and probably don't even have enough warehouse space because they're just outgrowing that and um, have tons and tons of stock on hand so that's um, put a big squeeze on the wholesale market and then where you go with this product liability side of you know um private label how's that fit in the mix well um you've got inflationary pressures now and anything you're looking at today, you're probably looking at, well, what are my options? You know, if I wanted that item, is there a cheaper option that's just as good? Um, and is there a knockoff brand? Is there, you know, you have, you know, very educated customers. Now we can research anything we want. So there's that dynamic with with inflation pushing the pressure on the consumer and how's the whole supply chain kind of fill that need. So um, a lot of things going on today, and we probably all have, a lot more line of sight about what the supply chain is overseas coming out of COVID and why we can't get certain items. So we've got to look for options. And sometimes those options are private label products or store brands, or um, maybe we just don't have the cash to buy the top shelf item. And uh, we're going to look for something that'll suffice. So um, that's kind of things in a nutshell today.
0: Yeah. I think the salad analogy was an interesting one. And I do think it's very true that is consumers we became much more aware of the supply chain than we had been previously because at least in the US it took for granted that you went into a store or a car dealer or a grocer or what have you and what you wanted would be there and so it, was, it was a surprise to us when that started to change
1: right right we didn't know how much you know that new car we wanted uh, relied on something that's in europe because okay we can't get that out of europe now or um knowing that um anything as simple as toilet paper to the latest car that we were interested in to maybe some clothing products everything was you know thrown up in the air and this then ties into a bigger manufacturing topic of reshoring and onshoring, but um it's affected almost every industry for sure
0: so what's driving wholesalers to um increasingly enter the manufacturing space
1: Their business model has been squeezed. So there's um, a couple very big, well-known companies, Amazon, Walmart, Home Depot, all these very reputable big box retailers. They have a wholesale division. They give wholesale discounts. They sell things in volume, big shipments, um, that whole business model. So the the omni-channel experience also applies to wholesale. So those larger uh, retailers have, you know, they have the warehouse space to do it. And that has taken a big bite. Uh, out of the traditional wholesale um, business model. So wholesalers being innovative in uh, understanding this or, um, you know, looking at it and saying, well, how do we get our market share back? What do we got to do? And there's a couple ways that they are reinventing themselves. One of that is through um, actual services for some garden variety products. There's not a lot of technical expertise uh, necessary, but Sometimes there really is. So that's where wholesalers excel. But the other side, too, that is having exclusive product. Wholesalers have been in the seat saying, these manufacturers I work with, I know where they really get their product from. It's someplace overseas. Well, if we can design it in-house, can we work with those, say manufacturers overseas? And we can be become the direct importer or coming up with exclusives to sell to the retailer because they also have a closeness to the retailer knowing what the demand might be and where they can fit you know something in that private label space and, show some value in that they already have the warehouse they already have the logistics the sales networks so they are you know looking to reinvent that so that's one part of it but also you know the mark tend to be better a traditional wholesaler operates on make it up on volume but that that margin is really three to four percent on average margins on private label products tend to be much higher they could be in the teens to multiples of that depending on what particular segment or industry or type of product you're talking about but they are generally better so you kind of have a, a two-sided thing they have to reinvent because of competition but they're also seeing a, a potentially a better need so if you boil it down that's what's spurring some of the private label more direct importing than they maybe uh,
0: were traditionally used to thank you so Of course, as a podcast about risk, we're going to talk about risk, but here's how I was kind of thinking to get into that. I don't see things at a macro level, business level, like you will as a professional in this industry, but just at the consumer level, I have seen an increase in a lot of private individuals, for example, creating something like a side hustle. They're buying something inexpensively overseas, like you mentioned, perhaps, and then becoming their own retailer, their own distributor. And that might seem like kind of an easy income on the surface, but- my bet is there's probably a lot of risk there. So what are a couple of those risks that you see dealing with bigger scale manufacturers?
1: Yeah, uh, Yeah. so constant theme I hear, you know, almost, I don't want to say monthly basis, but a regular basis is uh, our customers don't make the stuff. They just import it. Um, all they do is box in and I just cringe because it's like you have no idea. There's so much risk involved. There's profit involved for sure, but the product liability um, tort liability system in the United States is very complicated, in addition to just the manufacturing defect and the manufacturing exposure. So, if um, I back up, wholesaler traditionally didn't have to worry about product liability as much. They had a US based company uh, or a relationship with somebody, and they the box in, they maybe broke it down and then shipped it back out to somebody else. If any complaints came in, probably went back to that company who was on the box or the label or the retailer and things of that nature. But if you're a private labeler your name is on it you're going to be the backstop for anything and if you're the importer of record on anything uh, there is probably little to no chance of getting any transference of a liability claim overseas so uh, what are the product what are the the exposures well i can name off a few there's the manufacturing defects in the product itself um, that you would need to think about there's defects in raw materials and the quality of the raw materials there's a plethora of uh, issues with warning labels and packaging and instructions. There's laws that uh, stipulate that. There's um, a variety of regulatory agencies that you would need to be aware of um, that could be governing that, that product. Um, we can talk about that in a minute. There's industry standards, which may not necessarily be laws, but they're so commonplace, they effectively become the standard of law, then the advertising and the copyright and patent infringement topics also come into play because what you have on your product or your label is also cause for potentially a civil action. So uh, if you're a manufacturer and you've been making these widgets for years, uh, you're well aware of all this stuff. You know, topic of manufacturing defect, you know what your product can or cannot say on the label. You probably already have attorneys or something like that. But if you're not accustomed to that, it's a huge, huge issue from a products
0: why don't we, there's a lot to unpack there, so why don't we yeah. break a couple of those down, um, just like one at a time. You mentioned the, mm-hmm. the first one was manufacturing defects. Um, what, what's the risk that wholesalers need to consider there? Because as you mentioned, this is not a space that they're historically familiar with.
1: Right. So uh, a manufacturer, they'll be keenly in tune with what's called reject ratios. So this is when stuff comes off the line. A manufacturer will keenly monitor that percentage of stuff that just didn't come out right. We've all heard of lemon laws or lemon cars where something came off, got fixed, something was wrong with whatever on that particular version of that car. Uh, if you've ever been to a plastics manufacturing plant, there's always a scrap heat of stuff that came out and it was just misshapen, disformed, uh, parts didn't come out. So manufacturers are very in tune, uh, you know, work of buying stuff off the shelf and it's perfect, but that's not what actually happens in reality in, in a manufacturing plant. Um, if you're a box in, box out wholesaler, you're probably not even, everything looked fine. But uh, again, you'd have to be in tune with, if you're getting something shipped to you from somebody else that was overseeing the entire manufacturing process, you have to ask the question of what are their quality control standards? How do they determine which stuff gets rejected and not? And uh, sometimes there's a little bit of conflict with, well, if they reject the stuff, um, that's lost profit potentially on the manufacturer. So you might get something that's kind of questionable. Some higher risk products are gonna have um, very high QC standards, and maybe some lower risk products may not have to have that same standard. It kind of all depends, but you just have to be aware that what goes on in the factory floor has to be accounted for, and you should have your own quality control standards and pull stuff and you know actually look at it, maybe have a third party sample it, but effectively, yes, manufacturing defect, you could be on the hook for that
0: if right? you're uh, producing something like heart monitors versus paper clips <laughs> like there's <laughs> there's yeah. a standard of quality that we hope is upheld, yeah. right?
1: Right, yeah. Certain safety critical products and medical products, some of them are are 100% QC, rigorously tested, you know, ID numbers put on them. So, same thing goes with certain aircraft quality products. On the other hand, is it a sweatshirt or a hoodie? Um, Does that need to be 100% QC'd on every aspect of it? Probably not. Probably do some batch samplings and pull a few out and see, are they all okay, or do I just got one or two bad apples?
0: So you know, I'm curious. During the early days of COVID, we did see a move by some manufacturers to try and repurpose their facilities to make specifically ventilators. Because in early COVID, that was like yep. crucial, right? What what kind of I'm curious if you if you worked on any of those or if you saw any of that, because when you mentioned medical device liability specifically, that can't have been as easy as maybe it sounded on the surface.
1: Um yeah, it just so happens that, you know, so you had this, this situation with the president invoking, I think the War Powers Act uh, might be a little fuzzy on the actual, but they they did enforce that certain manufacturing facilities had to retool to meet that. Now, if I was a manufacturer, I'd be pushing back on saying, well, then you also have to not hold us accountable because we may not have designed this product. And there's a certainly a gray area there. You did see clothing and even like upholstery shops get written requests from hospitals to make masks because right. you can get masks, you know. So yeah, there was yeah. a variety of things that uh, that did. You know, it all varies, kind of depends on the, the level of expertise. And so product liability comes to, there's the actual quality of the product, then who's responsible for the design. important so to today is wholesalers that were importing products, hand sanitizers. These were, these were hot buttons for right, you know, constantly right. getting recalled uh, because of quality, I mean, they were absolutely defective uh, hand sanitizers that were actually harmful. PPE gloves, you couldn't get gloves. I remember reading one insurance story where someone imported PPE from another country. I don't want to name that country, but it was all tainted. There was literally like used PPE gloves and um, it was literally to the tune of millions of dollars that was lost and at stake. So these are like extreme examples, but um, the stuff does show up. so you do become at risk when you are the importer of record. And if you do catch it, well, then you also have financial implications. Now you've got a shipment, you've already transferred money and who's holding the bag, you know? Go so, ahead. um, so this is where it's, it's important to have that relationship with, if you are importing something and working with a company and you've designed and developed something, what's your relationship with that overseas company, the big manufacturers, very stringent relationships. They not only send their employees there. They've had ongoing relationships, um, very closely tied. So it's almost like it's theirs, even though it's not theirs. But if you're just, um, getting into it. You could have varying degrees of, you know, relationship issues and what kind of quality of product you're going to get.
0: It's interesting that you say that. My brother-in-law is a brewing master, a beer brewing master. And I remember okay. when he was setting up one of his breweries, he actually went overseas to watch the manufacturer of the big vats that he was buying to install them, you okay. know, just yeah. so that he could understand exactly how it was being created in the safe, you know, the quality issues that you mentioned, et cetera. Um, Because he knew that was obviously going to impact his downstream product in the end.
1: Right. And then if, you know, if there was a defect in it, then that sets him back to the point of, well, how do I fix for, you know, I can't function as a business because now I've got this defect and the company's overseas. There's many stories like that from a prior life and a you know prior company working with overseas manufacturers and critical products. Um, yeah, quality is super important. It's not to be taken for granted.
0: The, the supply chain is just, it's mind baffling to me, you know, in my line of work, how incredibly complicated and global it is. One of the other ones that you mentioned that I'm curious to hear more about is you talked about raw material defects and quality. Can you talk to that risk a little bit?
1: Yeah, say that, you know, you get the batch of product and it looks like it's okay and everything, you know, cosmetically might be fine but it turns out there's something with the raw materials. This is a common example would be lead. Uh, To this day, if you go to CPSC, Consumer Safety Product Commission, uh, they're constantly, they've got a rolling page of things that are getting recalled and for what reasons, and you will constantly see lead showing up in metals products. So from stainless steel drink tumblers to costume jewelry, even in the ink in silkscreen t-shirts, this still leaches in uh, because of lower grade materials, lower grade products um you have to test these this product so you don't have the direct oversight of what's going in to the raw material maybe your sample maybe everything on the batch first blush looked great but it runs hot for lead and you got to recall it all um you see BPA that was largely outlawed in plastics but it could still show up another hot button issue at a PFAS uh, PFAS runs in everything from food packaging
0: to And PFAS water- is
1: there's a, over 1000 a different compounds um I'm not a chemist, I'm going to botch it, but it's a short... Is that what they
0: call the forever chemical?
1: It's forever chemicals, thank you. Okay, okay. Um, And then there's, you know, versions of it, but it shows up in your waterproof garments, shows up a lot of clothing, Uh, anything that's been treated, or even your upholstery, uh, it's shown up in cookware, it's shown up in food packaging, because this product is uh, water resistant. So it's what kept that really juicy burger from, you know, seeping into your lab. The problem is these things don't dissolve. They don't go anywhere. So uh, we could spend all day on PFAS, but you know, the point here is the product you got, is it running hot with any of these things? And there are standard, they should be tested for. If you had a really bad case of lead in a drink tumbler, you could be liable for that. There's, um, but then to go beyond that too, let's talk about the topic of clothing specifically. There is a flammability in fabrics act and there's specific children's clothing guidelines. So if you're you may have had a what looked like a perfectly good prototype but then there's something wrong with the fabric itself and it didn't meet the flammability standards that are required. So um that would be an example of a raw material that you know failed the US standards. I know of one product liability case was uh, mattresses, a uh, company imported mattresses and the filling uh, turned out later it was fiberglass uh okay. instead of yeah. Yeah. Very itchy, uh, very rough sleep at night. No fatalities, but that was definitely a product liability suit.
0: So Bill, when you talk about things like those lead levels or the forever chemical levels, et cetera, in your opinion, do you think that's intentional or is that Something that's accidental.
1: I don't think it's intentional. Uh, I think the manufacturing process has so many steps along the way that this is why you have to have your own checkpoints. Because from anything from you know testing of the raw goods, for example, okay, well, do we know if the private label company contracted with? Do we know what their standards were on testing it when it came in the door? And then was there something along, literally in the manufacturing line, did it pick up something off the machine? Uh, was it mishandled? I don't think it's intentional at all. I just think there's being aware that there are so many processes where things can happen. And unless you have a checkpoint or quality standard along the way, that this is where things go wrong. An example would be like in the food industry where a company has an allergen, undeclared allergen. It's never intentional. In my experience, it's always just been, well, someone didn't clean the lines right. Or something didn't get checked along the way um something just happened and you know protocols were not followed or there wasn't a protocol to begin with um this is the nature of you know the risk that it takes time it takes energy it takes thought um takes consultation and collaboration so i don't feel that it's ever intentional i think it's just um lack of awareness or understanding which is maybe why we're talking about this stuff today
0: And I think that is interesting. It's it's, so from your perspective, it's not nefarious, but like you say, maybe there's just not a protocol in place because, for instance, I don't think we used to put warning labels on things that were made in manufacturing plants that produce things with nuts, for instance. But now we do because we've evolved and now we know that's actually a a danger to people. But, you know, we, we had to get to that realization, unfortunately, by someone getting sick, right?
1: Right right exactly we can go down almost any product line that has something in it and there's probably a standard manufacturers tend to be a little more cognizant of this if you're direct importing it or coming up with the design or an idea of something you know this is stuff you got to be aware of there's a variety of things that happen in the actual manufacturing process even you know aside from the prototype you might have developed
0: so talking about food labeling but you mentioned (laughs) the fiberglass mattresses and it made me think about warning labels um, packaging instructions that that's probably an area that wholesalers need to consider from a product liability perspective. Also, right. I've seen some crazy warning labels, which tells me that some crazy things have happened.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think there's plenty of joke websites too about warning labels and things. So, um, but in all seriousness, so this is a warning label instruction. How would I be responsible or what goes on? This is where your product or a product did not fail. It did exactly what it was supposed to everything went according to plan, but the user was not properly identified of what could go wrong. Um, maybe even the instructions showed something other than what the product you had. It showed something that was confusing or, or misinterpreted. Um, this could go on all day long. Um, I'm thinking of a you know, rock climbing company years ago that made rock climbing harnesses, and this, this company wrote about it in their own book, and they said that they were in a, in a product suit because someone was injured using one of their harnesses, the harness did not fail. It was just the failure to warn the user of what the hazards are of rock climbing. And that became the basis of a suit. And this is why you know, almost any product you buy now has got some sort of warning label attached to it. It's not just consumer products. There's also industrial grade products that have to have warning labels. There are ANSI standards. So American uh, National Standards Institution sets guidelines about what should be out for your warning labels and so forth but there's another company that had their own product. It was a retail store had their own line of tools and in their catalog they showed their advertisements so it's quasi advertising but it also could be warning uh showed a, a machine guard on there the actual product didn't have it people got injured because the machine guard wasn't there and the ship product but it was also in the instructions so you need to be aware of what those standards might be usually you have to have an attorney involved if you're setting obstructions and warning labels you should have an attorney engaged because it's not only just the warning label it has to be the right color has to have the right symbol there are some standards you know, very specific i've seen even on websites products that had warning label i could tell right away that's not even the correct uh symbol or standard or color so having the right consultation is important in that regard
0: so serious the people um Uh, don't get that wrong, you know, and that they have someone who knows what they're doing, especially when you talk about standards for safety. So that actually makes me think about regulatory agencies. Mm -hmm. We've got Federal Trade Commission, Consumer Product Safety, FDA, the EPA. There has to be a ton of (laughs) information that an organization has to know about so they don't step out of regulatory (laughs) compliance, right?
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. If you're a manufacturer, you've been making and designing widgets, you have schooled engineers or developers that kind of know where what each one of these do. Uh, if you're just going onto Alibaba's website and having a crate shipped of a bunch of stuff to turn around and put your name or silk treat or sell it or whatever, uh, you might not be understanding of how all these government agencies work. So to break down some of this, um, Federal Trade Cons- Commission, this is the agency responsible for the dry clean only label on your clothing. Uh, you have to have those by law. You have to have the care instructions. You have to also have the point of origin of where they were made. I mean, this is the made in America versus assembled in America, you know, um, agency that you know regulates that and make sure you're in compliance so this this is a consumer based agency right they're they're protecting the public when they buy stuff off the shelf so ftc they set standards for a lot of consumer grade products. the cpsc um, is consumer safety product commission now cpsc has the authority to do recalls both of these agencies can levy fines they work in conjunction with each other cpsc does actually have a, a what it's called a regulatory robot it'll help guide you on what you think you need to be in compliance with. Um, again, huge vast array, they're responsible for anything from coffee makers to toys to household items, furniture. The USDA and FDA, these are typically food-related organizations. USDA is usually your poultry, beef and meats, you know, shelled eggs. Um, FDA, that's your anything else, seafood, packaged foods, uh, prepared foods, animal foods, uh, also your medical devices, cosmetics, uh, and drugs. The other one I'd say is FCC would be uh, because they you know, if your product is electronic and has any sort of communication, so Bluetooth device, you know, these little earbuds that I use here, uh, Bluetooth enabled, that's FCC regulated as well. So it, you actually could be uh, subject to CPSC because it's an electronic device with a little battery in it. And it also be FCC because now it's transmitting a signal. So so it does get very complicated Um, but you have to be aware of it, you know, these are the agencies that exist in the United States and, um, non-compliance, you know, could be very costly.
0: Not to be taken lightly by any stretch of the imagination.
1: Oh, and then beyond that, um, there's also state regulations. So we're all familiar with California Prop 65 warning, right? So this is if your product contains any of the chemicals listed on Prop 65, you have to disclose that, um. California is not the only state that has that sort of regulation. It's probably the most well-known, but there are other states that also have disclosure laws, and they can even be just as strict. To give you a couple examples, there's some states that have a lot of uh, standards on baby products, so baby food, baby clothing, um, and so forth. You know, so you'd have to be aware of if you're some some of those industries in whatever state you might be, you could have additional regulations even at a state level.
0: I have to be honest. I'm sitting, I'm sitting here shaking my head because just at my, again, at my consumer level, um, <laughs> one of the ways my teenage son got through the pandemic was he actually bought a kiln. Um, he had been throwing ceramics in school. And when the pandemic shut everything down, we actually bought a kiln, put it in the basement you know he had a big idea he was going to be the manufacturer and the retailer and you know this was going to be a side hustle for him i don't think any of it ever actually made it out into the world but i do have it in my house and i'm like i don't know where that clay came from or what's in it i don't i don't know what that what that glaze is what's in there <laughs> I don't know if the kiln he fired this stuff in is up to standards. And I'm rethinking my beverage wear at the moment.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, hopefully you got some good coffee mugs out of it.
0: I have some that I love, but I have to be honest, they don't have any warning labels on them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the geek is me is saying, so that would be subject to FDA because it's food cookware. And there's, there are standards between transferring food, uh, to between the cookware items and so forth. So, um, so there you go. Well,
0: yeah,
1: put, I yeah.
0: I'm, I'm going to reevaluate my uh my coffee cup <laughs> choices, maybe a little more. But so I will well, assume, and, you know, go ahead, Bill.
1: Oh, I was saying, who knows. It might be better than some of the other stuff that was off the shelf. So, I mean, you know, it could go either way.
0: Who knows? Who, I'm questioning a lot of things right now.
1: Okay.
0: So another area that you mentioned in liability, I would assume falls under advertising, especially if you're a company we talk about, again, companies who are out of their usual level of familiarity. Um, and if you've got someone who's maybe doing graphic design off the side of their desk or something, might not understand the seriousness of the laws around design of packaging and marketing and things like that, right?
1: Yeah. So advertising injury gets very interesting because this is now we're getting into civil actions. It's more than just laws per se. There could be some laws about what you have to put on your labels. I'll give you an example. If you say your product's all natural and it's not all natural, I mean, you could be sued, you know, because someone bought your product thinking that or a hot one is organic. When in fact, and this could be in your fabrics, this could be in the foods you eat, it could be, you know, a variety of things. But you say, oh, it's organic and it's actually tested out and said, no, this is not organic. That's a cause for civil action. Uh, I know of one case where a certain sports snack bar company put something on their label, the snack bar was healthy. I I forget the exact exact nomenclature, but they said something about how healthy it was. And in fact, it had 15 grams of sugar in each bar. an individual cited the American Heart Association saying 15 grams of sugar in a bar is not healthy they filed a suit i don't know if it actually went to trial but it settled out for a very large sum and an exponentially higher amount of attorney legal fees so anything you know seeming a lot innocuous could actually you have to be very careful about what you're claiming your product is what it does um another case uh active right now is bed sheets and thread count uh company sold 400 thread count bed sheets customer went uh, apparently they had it tested and the thread count was actually 180 wasn't even half of what was claimed on the uh, package I um <laughs> and um uh, this guy didn't
0: think anybody would notice
1: I guess not I I don't know let's go back to the raw materials thing we talked about Maybe the prototype was, yeah, we got 400 third count. That's what they signed off on. This is what we sold. This is what was on our label. What came out of the factory wasn't 400 third count. Uh, We could speculate all day long, but this is the fact, and it's a class action suit because it wasn't just one individual. They didn't sell one set of bedsheets. They sold thousands of bedsheets. And um, did anyone get hurt? No. The case is going to be over economic loss. We overpaid you know, sure. a, a fair amount for what this product actually was. So these are all examples of advertising statements. What, what it is. Greenwashing is another hot I was button. Yeah.
0: I was yeah. going to ask if you are going to mention that yeah.
1: one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, saying uh, how environmentally friendly it is or, or what, you know, this is another uh, minefield. I don't have a lot of great examples off the top of my head, but I know it exists. The topics I know revolve more at a DNO level, directors, officers, saying that we're environmentally socially responsible when maybe their products aren't made that way or or what they're proposing and um and then you get into things like um if your product is a regulated product alcohol tobacco you know any things that should you know be you know age specific and if it looks too much like a kid's product um there's been number of suits where some beverages were adult beverages and they look more like soda pop. So that all comes into play. So um, if your product looks a too similar to competitors, it confuses the c- customer, you know, that, you know, that could also be cause for a suit. Um, I don't know if it's, I don't know if this is an advertising or packaging suit, but there are standards in California where you, it's a uh, how much fill you can have in a package. So you can't have so much airspace by volume. This just comes up more food. So you buy a box of uh, cake mix and you find that there's too much air in there, that's actually cause for a soup.
0: Wow, lots of of risk to look out for. So this is, again, you know, we talk about wholesalers looking to regain value or reconsider their place in the supply chain. This is not uh, an undertaking to be done lightly.
1: Absolutely. Again, th- there are reasons to do it. We're just trying to highlight. These are some of the things you have to be aware you, you of. You to be
0: aware, exactly. Yep,
1: yeah.
0: Yep. Um, last one I wanted to ask about, because I'm curious, um, copyright or patent infringement. What's What's the potential risk there?
1: Yeah. So going back to the whole topic of private labels and some of these look like or very similar to maybe a big name product. I'm not going into the whole full-blown counterfeit rings those exist they're illegal um but then if you're towing that line saying well we want to make this product you know that customer's item is that company's items you know super hot it sells for thousands gonna make something very similar if it gets knocked off too close these bigger companies are very in tune with that they have legal departments that look for the counterfeit rings and try to shut those down but then your a product could show up and if it's too similar they will take action they're protecting their brand their legacy Um, some of these products are built around, you know, quality standards. There's always an image or a story behind the brand that they're also trying to maintain and and they've worked hard, you know, they have every right to, but you have to understand that there are patent such things as patent laws. There are such things as copyright laws. And, uh, even to the extent of the materials used and how the items are made, uh, this goes on very much in the clothing industry, some sporting, some very technical products. Uh, some of those fabrics are patented. only a certain carrier that developed it can or a carrier really? a, a company, yeah, yeah, so if it showed up in something, even though it maybe didn't look like that raw material shouldn't be used. so there is legal risk involved with that. Usually again, it's an economic or um financial usually you get a warning letter, cease and desist. you name your consumer good. there's probably a knockoff. I also know the other extreme too is that some companies uh, I know of one company that had bicycle helmets. And um, they had a very specific prepared, proprietary design. They spent a lot of time engineering it. They had very good, high-quality controls. Overseas, a company was knocking it off, and it wasn't even to the same quality standards. Helmets have to meet safety standards, sure, yeah. and these these products were not meeting even these safety standards. Um, it went to trial, and the judge actually was able to order shutting down the URL, so these companies couldn't even sell the knockoff counterfeits. They couldn't control the companies overseas, but they were able to shut down the URLs, so they couldn't effectively sell it. Now, you know, that's an extreme example, but, you know, it, this does exist, you know, knockoffs and counterfeits, um, you know, um, that's something to be aware of. Just where, where are you at in the chain of things? What are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? If you have your own idea, your own image, your own product, it's all well and good. Just be aware of where do you fit in the scheme of commerce in the market that you're at. Sure.
0: And we should be grateful that we do have so many standards, um, and protections in place to, to protect, consumers and and what have you um but it is not something to be taken lightly and i very much appreciate a great conversation you've given us a lot in terms of um exposure and risk you know liability etc that someone a wholesaler looking to go direct into retail really needs to unpack and and uh, work with an expert before they make that step so thank you so much for your time
1: Uh, Absolutely, Stephanie. I'm really glad to be here and and, uh, love chatting with you.
0: Thank you. And to our podcast listeners, thanks for joining us for Zurich's Future of Risk. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Future of Risk, presented by Zurich North America. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you left a comment or review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Let us know what you think at media at zurichna.com and join us next week.